There was a recent uh, survey done by Zogby, an analytics company. That, uh, it was a large, one of the largest surveys done in the U.S. on values. And it asked people to define what they took to be the most urgent problem in American culture, the most urgent problem facing our nation. And the number one thing by a significant mar uh, margin was greed and materialism, was uh, universally almost said to be the number one problem. The number two problem was the underside of greed and materialism, which is poverty uh, and economic injustice. So, and I think we can all agree as we look out at our world, as we look out on American culture, as we, as we get the, the temperature of the world that we live in, we can look out and say, yes, if there's one thing that we have become experts at as a culture, it's greed, it's materialism, it's acquiring more and more bigger and better. A recent poll in The Economist uh, asked readers, what is the deadliest sin, the deadliest of the seven historical seven deadly sins? And, all, and, and again, by a wide margin, people said greed. Greed is the most deadly of the seven deadly sins. But interestingly, uh, another poll conducted by the BBC America uh, took a wide-ranging poll, again, on the seven deadly sins, asking people, which one of the seven deadly sins do you think is the biggest problem in your own life? Uh, which one have you been guilty of most recently? Into both of those questions, greed ranked dead last. So you notice what goes on when we think about greed, is we can all agree it's a problem. We can all agree that as a, as a culture it's a problem. But we're all convinced that it doesn't apply to us, right? That we're immune uh, from the culture of greed. It's one of those uh, issues that's easy to see in others and very, very hard to see in ourselves. It will always be possible for us to find people that we identify as having more than we do, as being greedier than we are, while excusing or ignoring the greed of our own hearts. In fact, right now, uh, depending on your political position during this time of heightened uh, political conflict, you are certain that at least one of the two major political candidates is utterly greedy, right? It might, it might be the one that you plan to vote against, that you think is so hungry for possessions, so hungry for power that they'll stop at nothing. Or you might be like an increasing number that think actually both of them <laughs> seem to be consumed with greed for more, for power, for wealth, right? It's something that's always easy to see in others, but very difficult to see in ourselves. You know, based on these surveys, it seems like all of us are in the position of this man who approaches Jesus, right? He, he comes to Jesus convinced of another person's greed being his main problem, right? He comes to Jesus and says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus, I've got a greedy brother, and you need to help him. You know, this is the second week in a row that our parable has been conditioned by Jesus being approached by a man asking him a question that Jesus goes on to refuse to answer. And instead, he gives the man another question. Right? It's a consistent enough theme in Luke that we might think, what is Luke trying to tell us? And that over and over again, people come to Jesus with what they think they need, what they think their biggest problem is. And Jesus is constantly reorienting them and saying, actually, you don't need what you think you need. Your biggest problem isn't what you think your biggest problem is. Let me tell you what you need. Let me tell you where your problems lie. And so this morning, we want to look at, at what this man thought his problem was and then what Jesus tells him 
that his real problem is and what our real problem is. Quite simply, this man was convinced that his problem uh, was that he had a desire, he had a right that was being thwarted. He had something that he was entitled to, something that he wanted to get his hands on. And there was an obstacle between his getting what he wanted. And so he came to Jesus to try to enlist him on his side in this debate with his brother. And I think we all think that. If I were to ask you what your biggest problem is right now, now there'd be as many different answers as there are people in the room. But I bet a lot of them would, be, would boil down to there's something I want and I, don't, and I can't get it and I want that obstacle removed so I can get it. Right? I want money, I don't have it, and I need, I need the job that'll help me get it. Right? That's the, the, general, the general thrust of where so many of our complaints lie. You know, here's what's going on in this man, we think, is in Israel at the time, when a father, when a, the leader of a household passed away, uh, his inheritance would be divided up among his children, and the oldest child got a double portion, got a double uh, amount of the estate as all of the younger sons. This was done for a number of reasons, but primarily to preserve land and estates in Israel so that families could pass on more than a simple even share to some of their children so that they could try to keep uh, their land together. And so every child was entitled to their portion and the oldest was entitled to a double portion. But what was preferable when a father died and what happened very often was that the children decided to live together on the land. They said, hey, there's two of us. Instead of liquidating our assets and me taking a third and you taking two-thirds, let's keep it together. Let's live. Let's put two houses on the land or live in one house. Let's, let's try to grow something out of what our father left to us. So the, prefer the preferable option was to stay together. And what seems to be going on here is that the oldest brother wants to keep it together, wants the younger brother to stay with him on the land, and the younger brother wants his share of the estate and wants to go his separate ways. And so he comes to Jesus saying, Jesus, tell my older brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know, most of these disputes in Israel were religious disputes. It's not uncommon, nor was it uh, unlikely or unusual, for them to go to a rabbi, for them to go to a, to a religious leader. Because what was it? At stake here wasn't the interpretation of, you know, government statutes and civil law, but it was in the interpretation of God's word. Tell, tell him that he owes me my share of the estate. And so he goes to Jesus to settle this dispute. And I love Jesus' response. Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you, or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Jesus uh, refuses to be brought in uh, to this domestic dispute. He refuses to settle the argument for this man. You know, it's interesting uh, that the man doesn't come to Jesus looking for advice. He doesn't come to Jesus um, saying, Jesus, look, we're in, here, here's the place that me and my brother are. Here's the fracture in our relationship. Help me with it. No, he already has an outcome in mind. And he says, Jesus, you go, you tell my brother to do what's right and to divide the inheritance with me. He's essentially trying to manipulate Jesus, trying to enlist Jesus as the, you know, the tie-breaking vote in this dispute with his brother. And yet Jesus uh, refuses to be manipulated by this man. I wonder how often we approach Jesus 
certain that we already know what's best in our life. Certainly already know, so certain that we know what he owes us, what life owes us. And so we go, not making a request, not seeking guidance, but making a demand. And we have to watch in our hearts uh, when desires for good things, when requests for good things become demands. Right? When instead of praying, God, give me the family that I, that I long for. Give me a spouse. Give me children. When it becomes a demand, God, you owe me. God, you, you're not coming through for me. We have to watch out. When it goes from, God, provide for me, help me to have enough. Help me to have enough to put food on the table and to provide for my family. When it goes from a request to a demand, God, you owe me. We have to watch out. Because that, uh, that posture of demanding is always idolatrous. It's always whatever that thing that you think you need is, is really the God of your life. It's really the central thing that you think if you have it, it'll, it'll give your life meaning and purpose. You're no longer approaching Jesus as your God. You're demanding that he give you what you really want and just trying to use him to get it. And so Jesus says, no, no. <laughs> what you think your problem is isn't your problem. Your problem isn't the money that you think you're due that you're not getting. What's your biggest problem? And he tells him that it's your covetous heart. Be on your guard against all covetousness. What is covetousness? It's, it's, it's greed, but it's even bigger than greed. Right? Greed is the desire for more and more money, the desire for more and more possessions. And covetousness includes that, but it's a broader category. That's simply the desire for more, the desire for better, the desire for that which you don't have. It's the belief that I, that I can't be happy until I get what I don't yet have. It's that unquenchable hunger that our hearts have for more, that refusal to rest and be content in what we do have, and always looking out towards what we don't have to give meaning and fullness to our lives. You know, I was talking about this passage with a number of people over the course of this week, uh, and I was talking about it with a number of guys. And as we were talking about this passage and covetousness in our lives, it was interesting that a lot of us said, you know what, for me, certainly, certainly it can be greed, right? I want more money. I'd love to have more money. I'd love to have a bigger bank account. But in the day in and day out, like, emotional experience of life that I have, it doesn't feel like what I covet most is money, right? Maybe for some of the guys, what, I, what we covet most is success, Right? Yeah, I'd love, I'd love the, the raise that comes with a promotion, but what I really want is just re to be recognized. What I really want is the promotion. It's the pat on the back. It's the recognition of all of my hard work. Or what I really want is, is status. What I want is respect. I want people to look at me. I want my, my family to look at me with respect and admiration. That's what, I, that's what I'm just, I'm after that more than I am about the money that comes with work. We all, we all recognize that we have these hungers in our heart, this desire for more, and it may be money. In our culture, very often it is. Maybe it's the things that money can buy you. Maybe it's the look and the fashion and being able to have more and better clothes. Maybe it's the respect that money brings. Maybe it's the comfort and the security that money brings, knowing that your, 
you have enough stored up to be safe through economic ups and downs or through retirement. But very often, it's what, it's what more represents to us. And for, for, for many of us, it's different. For many of us, it's different. I confess to this group that for me, you know, my, where covetousness comes in for me is often in, in and this is, this is hard to admit as a pastor, but it's in church size, right? It's just that this church can never be big enough uh, to fill up that covetous heart that looks down the road at thousands of members and goes, oh, man, I can, I can do that. But we all, it, it looks different in all of our hearts. But in all of our hearts, what it takes is to recognize that it's sin. That it's sin. It's sin to look at your life, to look at what's been given to you in love by your father, to look at that and go, yeah, it's pretty good, I guess. It's all right. But you know what would be really great? is the senior VP's salary, or that corner office, or that family over there, or that amount of respect, that amount of admiration, that guy's church. Right? That's sin. To look at our lives not with gratitude, but with lust and a desire for somebody else's life. And so he tells this story. I let, you know, as, as I got into this story, at first it's two very disjointed things. Right? A man who doesn't have what he thinks he needs, come to, comes to Jesus to ask for it. And Jesus tells him this story about a man who has more than he'll ever need in answer to the story. So how do these two things pair up? Because in Jesus' mind, in Jesus' logic in telling the story, they come from the same heart condition. Right? We all know that you don't have to be rich to be greedy. Right? You can be greedy and poor or greedy and rich. You can be covetous and rich and covetous and poor. Every, it's all about the heart that looks out beyond what we have, whether it's much or little, and says more. Right? And so Jesus tells this story on the other end of the spectrum. The story starts, there's the land of a certain man uh, that produced abundantly. I love the way that it starts. The land of a rich man produced. He didn't do anything to do this. Right, the man in the story, it's not that Jesus doesn't say there was a really wise farmer who planted the right crops in the right soil at the right time and through his own ingenuity had this great crop. It's almost luck. He says the land of this man produced. Right, he, was a, he was a farmer who had a windfall, just this, this bumper crop that had more, more that came in than he knew what to do with. He, uh, Jesus tells the story in this way, I think, to show that it's just an absolute blessing from God. It's nothing that he did. It's nothing, it's, he's not any smarter or any better at farming. This is just the sheer grace of God that comes into this man's life. And so all of a sudden, he finds himself with much. One of the commentators uh, says that at this time in Israel, 70 to 80% of the population lived day-to-day, meal-to-meal on a sustenance level of income. And yet here's this man with so much food such an abundance of, of property all of a sudden that he doesn't know what to do with it all. And so what does he do? He has um, what may be one of the most pathetic little monologues with himself uh, anywhere in literature. He says to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. So to put it in contemporary parlance, I don't have room in my garage for all my stuff. What should I do? I'll take out a larger storage unit, and I'll fill it up 
and then, then, I'll, then I'll have more. So I'll tear down my little storage unit, and I'll build a bigger one. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This is sad. Here's a man so self-absorbed that he's talking to himself. And he's not just talking to himself. He's planning future conversations with himself. Right? He's I know what I'll say to myself then. Then I'll say, soul, you've got plenty, right? Put it in my day timer, plan a conversation with myself next week to tell myself then to remind myself just how good I have it. This picture, I think, that Jesus is telling is an image of what greed, of what covetousness does to us, which is that it just pulls us in on ourselves, like an ingrown toenail, right, or an ingrown hair. You just grow back into yourself, and you get infected, right? You're no longer looking out. All this, all this blessing from God, he's not, he's not turning his eyes towards God. There's not a hint of a thank you. There's not turning his eyes out towards his neighbors at that 80% of the population that's living just meal to meal. Instead, he totally turns in on himself and just talks to himself, plans with himself, uh, stores up enough for himself, that sin just turns him in on himself. This is the way Augustine describes sin. In Curvitas Su, that, that, uh, that sin is the human soul grown back in on itself, designed to love God and to love neighbor. Sin just makes us focused only on ourselves. And in it, we lose our humanity. We lose our dignity. We lose those moments where we're most human, where we're living in gratitude, where we're living in love towards our neighbors and concern for them. And it makes us into monsters. C.S. Lewis uh, painted just a really vivid picture of this. In one of the Chronicles of Narnia stories, uh, the, the Voyage of the Dawn Trader, he tells the story of a little boy named Eustace. Now, Eustace is just a character from the, from the moment he comes on the page, you can't stand him. He's whiny, and he's selfish, and he's greedy. The other kids can't stand him. He's always in conflict with them. And Eustace is greedy. And then one day, Eustace comes into a treasure trove guarded by an old dragon. So scary dragon, but an old one, sleeping on top of this hoard of wealth, crowns and jewels and gold just piled up. And Eustace goes, and he curls up, and he falls asleep there with the dragon on top of this pile of gold. And then he wakes up from this nap to discover that he's turned into a dragon, that he's no longer a little boy, but he's, he's lost his humanity and he's been turned into a dragon. And at first, he loves the idea. I'm a dragon. I can protect this gold. This dragon's old. He's going he's gonna to need somebody to take it over. I can have all the wealth that I've ever wanted. I can get back at those other kids who made fun of me. I can get revenge. I'm going to love being a dragon. But then over time, he starts to, to grow sad. He wishes that he could be a boy again. And so he starts to try to take off the dragon outfit. He starts to try to strip it away, and he, he finds that he can't. That it's not just something he's wearing, but that it's become who he is. And then Aslan, the lion, who's the, the Christ figure in, in Lewis's stories, comes to Eustace, and he says, let me undress you. And he starts tearing with his big lion claws into Eustace's flesh, into the scales. Lewis puts it this way. 
The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But little by little, Aslan pulled away the scales, pulled away the dragon, and he was a boy again. And then Aslan dips him in these healing waters and pulls him out, and he's made new. Right, in Lewis's Christian imagination, this is clearly the transforming work uh, that only Christ can do. To strip away, to make us new in baptism. To help us to recover our humanity again. You know, Lewis knew that this was more than symbolic. Uh, He writes in a letter to his friend. He says, will you believe it, that one out of every three thoughts that I have is a thought of self-admiration. I pretend, Lewis was a professor, He says, I pretend that I'm carefully thinking out what to say to the next pupil, for his good, of course. And then suddenly I realize that I'm really thinking about how frightfully clever I'll be uh, when I show him and how he'll admire me. And then when I force myself to stop it, I admire myself for doing that. (laughs) It's like fighting a hydra. Lewis knew what he was trying to portray in Eustace. He needed. That it took a deep transformation. That it took something more than just... um, than just trying harder, that it took something more than just trying to be less greedy and more generous, that it took a transforming touch uh, to save him, to transform him. The way that Jesus puts it in verse 21 of our passage is so, the one, uh, so is the one, speaking of this covetous man, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, the language there is, is really rich into God which is a strange way of putting it. But what it means is, he's contrasting somebody who finds all of their riches stored up in this world versus someone whose riches are invested in God. Someone who thinks that this world is as good as it gets and that if I work hard enough, if I manipulate enough, if I strive enough, that I actually can get everything I want in this life. I can get enough work. I can get enough money. I can get enough admiration versus the kind of person that recognizes that everything that I really need, everything that I've ever really longed for, the riches that my heart truly craves, are in Christ. Paul tells us uh, that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, talk about rich, Jesus from eternity past lived at the right hand of God the Father, never wanting for anything. Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sake, stripped down, became a human being, became a peasant in an out-of-the-way part of the Roman Empire, became poor, vulnerable even to death, so that we who are poor might become rich, so that we who even no matter how well we're dressed or how big our homes are, every human being is ultimately poor, right? We're ultimately mortal. Our bodies break down. We don't take it with us. And yet Christ became poor so that we can become rich. So that in him we can have everything that he had with his father from eternity. All of the wealth, all of the joy, all of the acceptance, affirmation, and life that he had in the father. We can have in him when we become his sons and his daughters. And when you experience that, when you experience that wealth towards God, It has the power to utterly change the way you treat your wealth in this world, the way you go about your finances, the way you go about treating your stuff and your longings. 
just a couple of things that it gives us from the, the next part of the passage. It teaches us to live our lives with gratitude, not entitlement, uh, feeling like we deserve things. I had three or four conversations just this week with people who've attempted to hire millennials uh, for various jobs. I'm, I'm a millennial. A millennial is anybody born in 1980 or younger. Um, and what, the thing that comes out about millennials over and over and over again is what? That we're entitled. Right? Every millennial thinks he's due a VP position right out of college. Uh, you owe me two months of vacation. Right? That there's an entitlement that bugs people. But what are they coming from? They're coming from, yeah, but I've had to work for everything I've ever gotten. Right? So there's a pride that can come with, with, with those folks, most of them boomers and above. Right? So are we stuck either between entitlement or pride about what we've built? No, there's, there's this way of gratitude in the middle that says I'm not entitled to something just by walking into my job. And yet also I, I, I can't look at my life and say that I've built it by my own two hands. Right? Gratitude requires us to look like Jesus does here, to consider the lilies of the field and the sparrows who receive everything they're given as a gift from God. That the very air that you suck into your lungs, the brain that you're able to apply to your work, the hands that you're able to apply, the health that you're able to go out and do your work, that all of these things are a gift from God. And that we're to live uh, neither with pride for our accomplishments nor entitlement but with a sense of gratitude that every single thing that we're given is a gift from God. It calls us to live not with fear, but with trust. And considering, uh, in Jesus' invitation to consider the ravens and to consider the fields, Jesus is encouraging them to trust God with their daily needs. He's illustrating what he taught them to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me this day what I need for today. If gratitude is looking at what you have in the present and what you've had in the past with gratitude and recognizing that they come from God, trust is the ability to look in the, into the future, believing that the God who provides for you today and who provided for you yesterday is going to provide for you tomorrow, that he's going to continue to take care of you, that he's going to continue to feed you and clothe you and provide for you. Now, he's not going to be manipulated by you, Right? You can't go to him and say, God, give me what I need to tell my brother to divide the inheritance. He may not give you everything you demand or think that you need, but that he will. God will care for you each and every day. So it leads us to trust. It leads us to generosity. Look at what Jesus says. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Right? It, our world isn't much different from his. Remember we said in those days that that roughly 80% of the population lived hand-to-mouth. The numbers aren't that much different today, right? Where the top, of the, the top of the pyramid controls the majority of the wealth in the world. And to handle our possessions with love means that we do give reference to God and gratitude, but then that we do look out with generosity towards our neighbors, that we do look to give, to give to the work of God in feeding the hungry and clothing the poor and providing that we give to his work and in and through the church, right? It calls us to live with generosity. I'd like you to consider, um, you know, it, it's always difficult when, it, when a pastor gets to meddling with your finances. Um, and so we're not gonna, I'm not going to tell you how much you have to give, right? It, it always is. A, it's an opportunity whenever, you, whenever you're normally just preaching through the Bible, preaching through the parables, and a, par a parable comes up that does speak to money because it's not, you know, the church isn't trying to make budget, 
Uh, we're not running behind and having to you know, try to get more and more out of you. Uh, we're, we're, doing, we're doing well financially. We do need you to keep giving, but we're doing well. This is an opportunity to speak from God's word, um, not from a position where, hey, God needs your money, we need your money. Right? The, you know, the church does need your generosity. But Jesus isn't concerned with money primarily because he needs it. Right? Jesus, remember, from eternity past, Jesus has been unfathomably wealthy. So Jesus is, why Jesus is always talking about money isn't because he needs your money. It's because he's after your heart. Where, the treasure is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Right? The, the hardest area for us to work out our discipleship, to work out what it means to follow Jesus, very often is in our banks. It's in our wallet. Because the wallet is so fundamentally connected to our hearts. Our money flows towards what matters most to us. It flows towards where our, where, what, what we're really living for. And so Jesus talks about money because he cares deeply about your heart. And Jesus calls us to gratitude because it's the, it's the antidote. It's the cure for a culture of greed is to learn to live generously. And so I would just ask you, do you have a plan for your generosity? Do you have a plan for how much you can give? Do you have goals for your giving? Do you, do you, have, do you have in your mind, hey, I'd like, to, I'd like to be able to give more five years from now than I can give right now? Are you aspirational as you think about giving? You know, I think the, the percentage that you give, what we've always said is that 10% is a good rule of thumb to think through. The Old Testament call, talks about the tithe, giving 10%. The New Testament talks mostly about generosity, um, which we don't think means less than that. But that, that can be a good rule of thumb to guide your discussions, to guide your planning as you think about what can we afford to give? How generous can we afford to be towards the people in our lives, towards the poor, towards the church? But what I, what I notice is it almost doesn't matter what the plan is, um, that if you have a plan, if you're intentional in thinking about generosity, as intentional as you are uh, in thinking about spending and saving, if you're that intentional in thinking about generosity, uh, you're, you'll be much more generous than you are if you just judge it by, well, what do I have in my wallet? What can I afford today? What's in there right now? Is to have a plan to be intentional and to do it as an act of worship because it matters. So he calls us to generosity, to, to sacrificial giving. I love this quote from Warren Buffett, the, the billionaire. Uh, he once famously gave $26 billion. Can you, believe, can you imagine having the money to give $26 billion? Billion. Billion. <laughs> to the Gates Foundation. So this is one insanely rich person giving $26 billion to another billionaire's foundation that does great work around the world. And he said this, my gift has not changed my lifestyle one bit. I still go to the movies I want to go to. I still eat at the restaurants I want to dine at. But what about the person who gives a gift that requires they can't go to the movies or eat out? They are the true givers, the true heroes of generosity. The sacrificial gift, what Jesus says here, sell something of what you have to give. Say no to yourself to give. We would say that's, yes, it's heroic, but for the Christian, that's the everyday heroism of following Jesus, who defined generosity by sacrifice, loving so much that he gave everything. True giving must be sacrificial. So it calls us to generosity, and then finally it calls us to think about our priorities. 
Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek his kingdom. You know, one of the things that giving does is it focuses our priorities. Our, our, our money, our heart follows our money. Right? Think about it. If you ever, bu- if you ever bought a stock in anything, if you, let's say you went and bought a stock in, in GM, that section of the newspaper where the stock prices come out, you probably went from never caring about it or not looking at that symbol to looking it up and obsessing over it and wondering how it's doing, wanting to make sure that it's growing, that your, your heart, your priorities follow your money very often, and your money reveals your priorities. And so Christ says that when your priorities are in the kingdom of God, his agenda, his redemption of the world, that if you seek that first and above all else, that you can trust God to take care of the other needs that you might have. And so to simplify our lives behind a desire for the kingdom, I'll end with this story. Uh, one of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence was a man named Thomas Nelson, Jr. Uh, you know, to sign the Declaration of Independence uh, as a colonial American meant to be guilty of treason uh, to the government, to the British government at the time. And so he, he, he signed his name onto the Declaration of Independence. Nelson was an incredibly wealthy man. Uh, in some ways, more than, than almost anyone else, he served to help finance the war, uh, the Revolutionary War. He gave out of his own resources. He gave so that Washington's army could have uh, ammunition. Sometimes he would uh, give them loans at incredibly reduced rates. That he was helping to fund so much of this Revolutionary War effort that when the British General Cornwallis came uh, just before the Battle of York, uh, when he came, he actually took possession, the Battle of Yorktown, excuse me. Cornwallis took possession of Nelson's home as his headquarters. He, took in, he came in and he kicked the Nelson family out and he took possession of his home. Why? Because he knew that this, this would be a blow to the financial life of the Revolutionary Army and because he knew that Washington, because of his friend, uh, his friendship with Nelson and because of Nelson's, Nelson's patronage, that he would never actually attack the mansion that he wouldn't turn his cannons on this mansion of his friend and benefactor, Nelson. And when Thomas Nelson heard about this, he went to Washington and he said, don't do it. Turn your cannons, attack him there. I don't care if I lose my home. I don't care if I lose my estate. Uh, Attack my house, basically. It's a picture of a man who for a dream, right, for a temporal dream, the dream of an independent nation, Uh, ruled not by a distant king, right? For that dream, he was willing to hold his estate, hold all of his material possessions loosely and say, I don't care what happens to it for that dream, right? Incredible things in history are accomplished by people who care more about a dream, more about a vision for something than they do about their own stuff, their own livelihood, their own wealth. And that's what Jesus is after uh, when he says, seek first my kingdom. And then trust me with all these other things. Uh, Everything else will be added to you. Is that the dream of the kingdom, the dream of a kingdom that's not just a different political ruler, but a kingdom that, that offers to utterly transform this world, to set straight everything that's broken. When you seek first that kingdom and seek to align your heart and your wallet and your possessions and your desires behind that kingdom and say, I don't care about what happens to myself, to my kingdom then Jesus, then God himself will take care of you, will provide for you. You can trust him with everything else.